Good morning, dear family. Let's go to him in prayer as we come to his word this morning. Father, thank you for these moments where we can open this book. But it is no ordinary book. It is your word. The very word of God given to us. Here in your word, we hear from you. Things that we need to hear, sometimes not things we want to hear, but always what is true is what we find here in your word. So speak to us this morning through your word. May your spirit open it to us that we might not only hear it, but understand it. And even more importantly, put it into practice. So guide this time this morning to your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open, if you would, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as we continue going through chapter 13 through 17, between now and Easter, looking at the last eight, approximately eight hours that Jesus had with His disciples before His arrest. We're going to be in verses 7 through 25 of chapter 14 of John's Gospel this morning. I wonder, have you ever wished that you could see God? That, well, I don't know if if you're this way, but I think, honestly, most of us have realized that at times it's hard to trust, to believe, to follow a God that we cannot see. We look at the scripture and we see folks like Moses, folks like Elijah, folks like Isaiah, Ezekiel, each of these got to see some vision or some portion of God's glory. And I imagine if you're like me, you may have at some time or other said something like this or thought something like this. If I could just see God... Or if I could see some unmistakable, miraculous manifestation of His glory, some unmistakable miracle of His hand in some big, undeniable, spectacular way, I would never again have a problem doubting God. I would never waver nor struggle in my faith. I would find it easy to be a devoted, faithful follower of His. Any of you ever feel that way? Of course, all we have to do is open the pages of Scripture to discover that there are clear examples on the pages of Scripture where people exactly saw something like that and it did not work out in real life, where they were unwavering, faithful followers of God. The Israelites are, of course, a very graphic illustration of this. The Israelites saw great miracles as God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. They saw the the plagues that God miraculously put on Egypt. They saw the miracle of the Passover. They saw as they came to the Red Sea that God parted the Red Sea for them to walk across on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army who followed after them that God had miraculously held at bay while they crossed When Pharaoh's army came across, they were all drowned in the sea as the waters came back together. They saw God miraculously provide water for them to drink in the desert where there was no water. They saw God miraculously every day provide food, 
manna from heaven every single day. Except one, (laughs) the Sabbath, Saturday. And that was the only day where you could gather twice as much the day before and it would keep for a day. Every single day was a miracle. They got to Mount Sinai and actually before they got to Mount Sinai, all along the way from when they left Egypt, God's presence was with them at night in a pillar of fire. They saw this miraculous column of fire every night. God was with them and He led them with that pillar of fire at night and pillar of cloud in the day. When they got to Mount Sinai, God's presence enveloped the mountain. His glory there. There was lightning and thunder and blazing light. And, and it was amazing. God told them to keep their distance lest they die, but He called Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and 70 of the leaders of Israel up higher up on the mountain where, they, where God allowed them to see a vision of His glory and God provided food. They ate dinner together with God. And then... As the other leaders go down, God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain where God gave His law to Moses. You know the story. After all that, just 40 days later, while Moses is still on the mountain, the people get restless and they call the leaders and they say, Hey, we're tired of waiting on God. Let's make a God. And they did. They made a golden calf. And while God's glory is still enveloping Mount Sinai and Moses is still up there getting word from God, these people having seen all that, they turn away from God, make this idol that they worship and say, this is our God in the process committing all kinds of immorality and crazy garbage. (laughs) And before we throw rocks at the Israelites, I look in the mirror and I realize that we are not really so smart and so strong and so faithful. And I have a feeling that if we saw a great vision, that it would wow us for a while, but soon we would forget. Seeing God with our eyes, seeing proof of His existence, does not automatically produce in us loving Yielded and obedient hearts. That is clear from Scripture. I'm going to go out on a limb. I think the way I read the book of Revelation, by the way, the way I see it, is that in the days before Jesus returned, there is not an atheist left on earth. I think everybody on earth knows that God is there. They just don't want Him. They refuse to follow Him. They will follow Satan's man rather than Him. That is the sinful, rebellious heart of man. Well, still, for those of us who do love God, who want to follow Him, I think that there is a common and perhaps a natural and normal desire for us to want to see Him. I want to see God. As we come to our text this morning... We discover that Jesus has just finished saying, as we read last week in verse 6 of chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now as we begin our text this morning in verse 7, Jesus continues by saying, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you do know Him and have seen Him. Jesus is telling His disciples that, guys, if you really knew Me, you would already know the Father. But right now you don't understand who I am. I'm putting words in His mouth there, but that's essentially what He's saying. You see, the disciples... Believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the promised one of God. 
Andrew declared that, the disciple Andrew, the very first day that he, that he followed Christ. John chapter 1, verse 41. He, that's Andrew, went and found his own brother Simon, Simon Peter, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Simon Peter later in his very famous declaration when Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just a couple of chapters from where we are here in John, the disciples will say later this night, all of them will say together, they will say, we believe to Jesus, we believe that you came from God. The disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that He is the Son of the living God. They believe that He came from God. But there is something missing in their understanding of who Jesus is. That Jesus is going to make clear here in just a moment. A key reality they're missing. Philip said to Him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Philip says, you know, Jesus, since you are, as we just read, verse 6, since you are the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. And since you say, if we knew you, we would already know the Father, and from now on we, we do know and have seen Him, then well, Jesus, since you're the way of the Father, show us the Father. <laughs> show us the Father. I think that is a very sincere cry from his heart as it would be for many of us if we were there. I, I want to see him. And I think when he says it is enough for us, I think Philip is saying, Jesus, that, that will make everything that we have been through worthwhile. Everything that we have left behind, we left everything to follow you. Everything we've endured. And it will fill our gas tank, as it were. It will fill our tanks. We're ready for whatever is yet to come. Obviously, Jesus is upset. Obviously, some things are going on here this night. Jesus is trying to tell them something. They know that. And they're, they're trying to process it all. But that will be enough for us. Show us the Father. And I think He's probably hoping for some... You know, heaven opening, angels singing, lightning flashing, thunder rumbling, earth trembling, mind blowing encounter with the glory of God. You know, Jesus, give us a glimpse of what Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Ezekiel saw. Give us just a glimpse. That'll be enough. But Jesus' response was astoundingly different. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. An astounding claim. Jesus says to see Him is to see the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he says, guys, do you struggle with believing that? He asks. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Is that a problem with you? Well, check me out. Examine me. Verse 10, he invites them to examine his life to verify those claims. Check out two things, he says. Check out my words. I don't speak on my own authority. 
What I speak are the Father's words, not mine. And he says, check out my works. The Father does his works through me. Check out what I do. I think he not only is talking, by the way, we tend to think of his miracles, which are part of his works. And we think of his teaching, but I think in the, when he says, check out my words and check out my works, Jesus is talking about not only his teaching and not only his miracles, I think he's talking about every single word he speaks and every single thing he does. And he's saying, guys, you've been with me for three years. Look at what I say and look at what I do. Are they the words of God? And are the the works, the actions of God? You say, well, what kind of thing is that to say? Well, who would you challenge to examine your life to see, to examine every word you say and everything you do? Walk around, live with me three, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Walk around with me, check my words and my actions. Are they consistent with God? Never inconsistent. Never a wrong word. I don't think there, no one of us would stand, would we? <laughs> not even a week. Most of us, not a day. See, Jesus says, it's pretty clear when you look. So Jesus says, trust me. What you see is a sinful, holy, perfect life in words and in action. So trust me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We are one. But if you struggle to believe that, then he says, you know, because certainly anybody can make any claim. He says, then look at the words, look at the works themselves. Look at the miracles. Because no one can do what Jesus has done. Now, Jesus' claim here to be God was not a brand new claim. It's not something that he had never claimed before. Again, there are people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, but they are ignorant of the Scriptures. Jesus very clearly claimed to be God. Two years before this, about two years before this, after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, John chapter 5 tells us of this tells us this commentary. He says, this was why the Jews were trying to seek or seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he healing on the Sabbath or breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. After Jesus had healed this man, he calls God his Father and the religious leaders go, (coughs) he's making himself equal with God, so they want to kill him. Again, a couple of weeks ago, and last week, we went back to John chapter 7 and 8, which was just about six months before this, at the Feast of Booths, when Jesus is in Jerusalem there with the disciples, and and again, the, the leaders are verbally assaulting him, trying to trap him, trying to trick him, and Jesus is teaching and speaking, and he says there, he says in John 8, he says, you neither knew me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John says, again, the leaders understood that Jesus was identifying himself as God. And so they were looking around for stones to stone him. But Jesus slipped right out with no one laying a hand on him because his time had not yet come. A couple of months later, in December... It's the celebration uh, that we call today Hanukkah. Jesus is there again in Jerusalem in the temple and Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. And again, the, the Jews start to pick up stones saying, it is not for good, a good work that we are going to stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus very clearly Claim to be God. And the disciples have heard Jesus say this on all of these occasions and perhaps more. But still, this night, this night there in the upper room, they struggle with this. 
And they have not yet embraced this reality. And we should not fault them too harshly for this. For they know well the Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the great Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One Lord. There's only one God. And how can God be both Father and Son? And how can God be man? You know, we've grown up hearing about the Trinity. That there's God the Father and God the Son. And we've grown up hearing about the Incarnation. God became man. Emmanuel. God with us. But this is all new to these men. And they're struggling with this. How does this fit together? We who have grown up with it all our, our lives, when we read it in the Scripture, still when we try to think about it, our minds smoke. <laughs> because we can't put it together in our mind. It is too wonderful and too awesome. And so we can forgive them here that they struggle with this. They've been with Jesus these three years and what they have seen is astounding. And what they have heard Jesus say is astounding. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long and you still do not know me? They're going, <laughs> They're struggling. But Jesus said in verse 7, we read it a moment ago, but from now on you do know Him and have seen Him. He's looking ahead a few days because they are on the verge of understanding. In just a few days, after Jesus' crucifixion and after His resurrection, they will finally then get it. Finally then the pieces will be come together and it will be clear to them. It is there finally in the upper room when that wonderful skeptic, that wonderful careful questioner Thomas, who said, I won't believe he's raised from the dead until I stick my fingers in his side and feel the nail prints in his hands. And he sees the risen Jesus. And you remember what he says? My Lord and my God. Oh, it's become clear. He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. They are one and the same. So looking back after the, after the resurrection, the Apostle John writes of John as he begins his Gospel. He begins writing, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we skip down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Just like a spoken word can give understandable and communicable expression to a thought of our mind. You see, you can't know my thoughts. But a word can give understandable and communicable expression to my thoughts. In the very same way, Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Creator God who became flesh and lived among us, expressing in ways that we humans could see and understand the glory and the wonder and the beauty of God. Not through lightning and blinding light and thundering, you know, thunders and, and crashing and trembling earth, but we see through words and the actions of the incarnate Son of God, we see perfectly revealed the unmistakable beauty and glory of God's character. His love, His grace, His goodness, His kindness, His gentleness, His tenderness, His holiness, His purity, and on and on. 
with the wonderful glory of God. Jesus allows us to see the Father, to see His character. Jesus goes on having dropped that big bomb to blow their mind. He goes on to make a very a couple of very powerful promises. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Remember, we saw when we began this study that Jesus is trying to tell them that he's going away. He's continually telling them he's going away. Here he says it again. I'm going to the Father. I'm going away. But he's also saying this. When I go away, these works that I'm doing will not stop because I'm going to the Father. These words will continue by you, my followers. You will do these works and greater works than these will you do. He says, we as Jesus' followers will do His works and greater works than those. This is one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in Scripture. Many people come to this and they read this and they say, Whoa! Well, what this means is that we as Jesus' followers should be doing the miracles of Jesus and even greater miracles than Jesus did. All right, let's go. And let's go do miracles. And we run outside and start to do miracles and realize, okay, they're not happening. (laughs) If that's what Jesus means, then His followers have failed. From the apostles on down. The apostles did indeed do miracles. And others there in that in the beginning of the church as well, did miracles. Jesus had, had allowed them and given them power through the Spirit to actually work miracles. But did they do greater miracles than Jesus? As I look at the pages of Scripture, I see no evidence on the pages of Scripture. I see no evidence in history. And I see no evidence in the church around us today, among believers today, I see no one doing greater miracles than Jesus. If that is the case, then where are the water walkers? If that is the case, then where are the storm stoppers? Who walk out into the middle of the hurricane and say, peace be still. Where are the food multipliers who feed thousands? You know, take a happy meal and go down to Bush Stadium and feed everybody. You see, no one's doing greater miracles than Jesus. Not even the apostles did those. Where are the dead raisers? And we have the apostles who raised a couple of dead people. But is there anybody doing that today? Where are the people walking down the street healing people? I know people have healing services and things. And do I deny that Jesus can do anything He wants anytime He wants? No. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, we just look around us and we go, well, no. So what is He saying here? Let me ask the question. What are the great works of Jesus? Let me ask another question. What is the greatest work of Jesus? Was it walking on water? Was it feeding the 5,000? What was the greatest work of Jesus? Dying on the cross for our sin. Paying the ransom. Paying the debt of our sin. That's the greatest work of Jesus. After that, we could say the resurrection from the dead when Jesus rose. There is the certainty of our own resurrection. The miracles of Jesus were great, but those weren't the great works of Jesus. The great works of Jesus were those two things, purchasing our redemption, His resurrection. And we could also say the other great work of Jesus was exactly what He is saying here. Who He has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus' other great work was revealing the Father in a way that we could see and understand what God is like. So what are the works that Jesus wants us to do? 
See, Jesus, by the way, his, his great work was what he said last week. I am the way. Is by being the way for us to the Father by dying on the cross, paying for our sin. I am the truth. Jesus proclaimed the truth. God's truth. And Jesus is the life. He's provided for us life. The life of the Father. Eternal life. So what are the works Jesus wants us to do upon His departure? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, verse 8, You will be My witnesses. In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, As you are going, make disciples. What's the work Jesus wants us to do? He wants us to share the Gospel, bring people to faith in Christ, produce followers of His, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, in all of His ministry on earth, all the miracles He did, all the preaching He did, He did it in the space between here where I stand right here and the Mississippi River, and you go north and south in Missouri, from the top to the bottom of Missouri, and that's about the space of Israel. And that's the whole extent of where Jesus was and where He proclaimed where he preached and taught and did miracles, that's it. At the end of his ministry, there were basically 120 people left. Book of Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's, he's gone to heaven and there's 120 folks there in the upper room. On Pentecost Day, the Apostle Peter gets up and preaches one sermon 5,000 people become believers in Jesus Christ. Within a short time, there's 7,000, then 10,000, then it goes on. And there are, in a very short time, hundreds of thousands of believers. And they're scattering throughout the world, have been doing that ever since. Sharing the good news of, the, of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Revealing the Father through proclaiming the Word of God. And over the centuries and across the world, crossing every boundary there is of language and race and nation and socioeconomic boundaries and everything else, bringing untold billions of people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, people who will stand one day before Him in great worship. That, my friends, that, my brothers and sisters, that's the greater works Jesus was saying. It's not greater in terms of types of works, but rather greater in terms of the scope, in terms of the magnitude. As we carry on the work of Christ, actually may I say it more correctly, as He carries it on through us. Which brings us to the other great promise. Look there in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Whoa, that's a big promise. He will do anything we ask in His name. Wow! Anything. <laughs> get, a, get a pad, get a pen. Let's start writing it down. <laughs> Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. Yeah. Oh, Wow! In Jesus' name! And He's got to do it. And that's what a lot of people think here. This is some little magic formula that we tack on the end of our prayers and now Jesus has to answer it. He has to do what I ask because He said so. Well, amen, Jesus will do whatever He says He will do, but that's not what He's saying. That is a misunderstanding and a perversion of what it's saying here. It's foolishness, obviously. Otherwise, we'd all have Porsches and Lamborghinis out there in the parking lot. And we see what we all drive. The phrase, in my name, means this. It means that what we request of God is in agreement with the character and with the purpose of Jesus. That He endorses it. It's very much the same as our church bank account. 
Our bookkeeper, Kathy, can write checks, and she does. Every week she writes scads of checks on our church bank account. And she was here in the early service, and I just said, but none of those checks are any good. Until our financial deacon comes in and endorses it. The financial deacon, you see, looks at all of those checks to make sure that they are in line with the budget and in line with the plans and in line with the purposes and, uh, and the, you know, with everything regarding the chapel. And when they are satisfied that the checks are good, they sign the checks. And I say in a limited sense, that's what Jesus does. When we pray in His name, it means that we are saying, Lord, my purpose, my desires are Your purposes. We're praying as Jesus actually taught us to pray back when He taught the Lord's Prayer. And He gave the example. And you remember, you go down and He says, Your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. Your will be done. Not my will. I want what you want. May it be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we're to pray. Praying in Jesus' name means that our prayers match His purposes and then Jesus endorses it. His limitless power and resources are available to accomplish His purposes through us. The problem with us in prayer is that, as James says, we do not have because we do not ask. That's one problem we have in prayer. The other problem we have, he says, is that when we do ask, we ask for the wrong motives. We're concerned about building our kingdom. Mostly what we pray for is a new car (laughs) and uh, you know, a better house and more food and new drapes and, and uh, a softer pillow, thank you. And, and we want stuff that makes our life more comfortable and meets the things that we, we enjoy and we desire. And, and we want to be well and healthy and prosperous. Even though we say we don't believe in prosperity theology, most of what we pray for is prosperity and health. Where what Jesus is saying here is in the context, He says, you'll do My works if your focus is on doing My works, on being the people I want you to be, being the people I've called you to be, doing the things I've called you to do, making known the Father, proclaiming Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. If that's our focus, then Jesus says, show me what you need because you've got a blank check. We put it to him, we say, Jesus, here's what, here's what I desire, I desire this, and it's for your kingdom, it's your, it's what I think you want, and he may say, well, that's really not what I want, I got a better plan, he may not give us what we want right there, because he has a better plan, but I think he will do far more than we ever believe he will, because we rarely ask for what he tells us to ask for, and he says, Whatever you ask in my name, according to my purpose, he says, I will do it. That's a promise from Jesus, not from your pastor. And I confess, I rarely believe him enough. Or I rarely think of his purposes enough to pray in such way. But I think when we do, we will be so astounded at what he does. We move on very quickly. He gives us, follows that with a loving command. A loving command. Just verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I wonder, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I know people have asked me that question sometimes. Uh, over the years, and we're talking, do you love Jesus? And, and my answer is, well, you know, I kind of waffle. <laughs> I think so. I hope so. I'd like to think so. And, and uh, you know, because what we really think when somebody asks that question, do you love Jesus? What we wonder, what we think is, do I have warm, fuzzy feelings for Jesus? Do I feel love for Jesus? And that's usually what we say when we th- when we think about love for people. Is you know, I have warm, fuzzy feelings for them. But you see. Real love shows up in real life. That's the way it does with people, and that's the way it does with Jesus. 
Real love isn't about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not about emotions. It's not that emotions are bad, but that's not real love. Real love is, is what rearranges our priorities to put another person first. Real love is what puts my desires behind their desires, my plans behind their plans. It subjugates my feelings and my agenda to their agenda. That's real love. Well, the way that shows up, Jesus just puts it here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will do what I say. Love, that kind of love requires two things. To love Jesus that way requires that we know what Jesus says. We can't keep his commandments if we don't know what they are. We can't do what he says if we don't know what he says. Get busy learning God's word. It also requires putting it into practice. Just like human relationships. By the way, love isn't about following rules. Love isn't about, you know, you don't love your wife by finding out what her rules are. You know, don't leave your dirty socks in the middle of the floor. Take the trash out on Wednesday night. You know, there's, there's 20 different rules. And I do the rule, I do follow the rules. That's not love. Love is I put them first. I do these things not because they're rules, but because I care about them. That's love. So it is with our love for Jesus. It's not about keeping rules. It's not about becoming a legalist. Well, I'm going to follow all of Jesus' commandments. No, it's saying I want to do what Jesus wants. I want to be what Jesus wants me to be. That's putting it into practice. I'm going to skip over verses 16 to 20 because that introduces a whole new big topic in this series, the Holy Spirit, and we're going to cover that next week. Move down to verse 21. Where verse 21, Jesus basically just restates what he just said. Verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So, do you love Jesus? And we are to love Jesus. Then do what he says. It's a loving command. But he goes on from that to make a a most astounding promise. Let me read. Continue in verse 21. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Okay. This takes us back to where we started. The word that you hear, Jesus said, is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And we go back to where we started, which was with Philip saying, show me the Father. And again, I say, do you ever feel distant from God? Struggling to love this God that we do not see? Struggling to feel close to Him? And we wish that He would show up in some big, tangible, glorious manifestation so we would know, yeah, He's real and He loves me. Yeah, I'd like to see that. And did you know what Jesus just says right here? Again, I go back to verse 21. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A personal manifestation. And we say, whoa! Pastor, you just blew my mind. Jesus says right there in black and white, He will manifest Himself to me. He does say that. And so we go home, we go outside, we sit out there on a rock, and we wait. Jesus, show Yourself to me. Let me note three things that Jesus says here. Number one, to whom is he going to manifest himself? 
Back to verse 21. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Who does he manifest himself to? The people who love him. All right. So, how do we love Jesus? Go back to point number four. If you love me, you will do what I say. Keep my commandments. You will make your priorities my priorities, Jesus says. You will make it your aim to do what I ask you to do, to don't do what I tell you not to do, and to be what I call you to be. All right. Jesus just says, if that's your heart, if that's your aim, if that's your desire, if that is the pattern and the the direction of your life, he will manifest himself to that person. That's a promise from Jesus, but it's not to everybody. See, there's qualification there. Second thing to notice that I notice here is the manifestation is God's part, not ours. He says, I will manifest myself to him, not you will find me. Not you need to go looking for me. You know, there's an awful lot of Christians out there that are saying exactly what I was kind of spoofing earlier. You know, going out and saying, we're going to look for Jesus to manifest himself. I'm, I'm waiting for an experience with God. And I listened to a tape of someone preaching on this passage. Uh, not a tape. I actually listened on the computer last week. Somebody preaching this passage and <laughs> shows how old I am. Sorry. And uh, they're saying, you know, don't just read this. It's not for us to just read this and learn this and tuck it away, you know, in our little library of knowledge. We need to experience this. And so you need to get, you know, we need to go out and we need to seek the experience. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, he who loves me obeys me. And the one who loves me, I will manifest myself to them. We're not seeking the manifestation. He says he does it. Third thing to notice here, because we wonder, how does that show up? Is that going to show up in some glorious, mind-blowing, you know, earth-shattering vision or experience? May I say, probably not. Because as I look at the pages of Scripture, that's not generally how God operates. Again, I picked examples of men who had that type of experience with God, but how many were there in the pages of Scripture? Just about as many as I gave. So how does he manifest himself to us? Would you notice just one more thing? I'm wrapping it up here. Jesus said, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What that says is, he is with us. When we do as Jesus did with the Father, seek to put our, live our life in submission to the Father, when it is our aim to be his people, to do his work, and, and we try to make that the, the, the thing which drives us, that is our heart desire, it is our, it is our thoughts, it is our occupation. Whatever we're doing in life, that we're doing it to the glory of God. When that is our aim, He shows up, notice, He makes us His home. It's not in in the spectacular, it is in the daily presence. The problem is we we tend to make the same mistake Philip did. Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, what do you think I've been doing for three years, Philip? Phil, open your eyes. After the resurrection, they're going... Oh, he was there all the time. May I say that when it is our aim to follow Jesus Christ, when that is when when we are aiming to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he shows up in the dailies. We will see him continually and constantly in the dailies of life. When I say, Lord Jesus, let me live for you today, and we recognize as we're going through our day, we recognize that. I am in this spot at this moment today because while I was here, this person came here. This thing happened and I realized God had me here for a divine appointment. And when you have that little nudge that, you know what, I need to do something for so-and-so, and you decide, I'm going to take over a cup of soup to them. 
And you get there and as you knock on the door and they answer, you realize that, oh, what I just thought was a nice gesture. God had me come here today because they need this. And when you get that, that little thing, you know, I should be, I should call so and so, I should call so and so, and you, and you keep putting it off because I should call, but you, I should call so and so. When you actually do pick up the phone and call them, you realize God was in that. And when you, you are sharing Christ with someone because we are here to be witnesses and you, you're afraid to open your mouth, but you finally do and you start talking and all of a sudden you realize in the middle of the conversation, I didn't know I forgot I knew that. You know? I, I, I can't believe I just said that. Where you realize God just spoke through you. That's what Jesus is saying. When we make it our aim to do the works of God, to speak the words of God, to live our life for Him, He shows up. And we know He is real. And He loves me. And He will work through me. And it fills up our gas tank to go another day in a difficult world. Well, I have run us out of time. But I, I can't help it. I got excited by this passage. And I hope you did too. Father, these are important words. Thank you for Jesus sharing these things with the disciples in that late night cram session, as he wrapped up those years with them before the cross. Thank you for having John record these words for us because we need to hear them. Father, thank you for sending the Son to be our Savior. Thank you for the promises that he has given to us that he will work through us And He will supply what we need if we will simply yield ourselves to Him. Forgive us for so often being wrapped up in ourselves, pursuing our agendas. Father, from this day forward, may we be changed. May life be different. May day by day be a growing in our nearness to You, our yieldedness to You. And may we see you working more fully through us for your glory, for the kingdom, and for our own good as well. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.